exciting. Claire, Chris, I don't know why I'm whispering, but I think we're live. Say hello to everyone. <laughs> hi there. Hi, everyone. Hey, Max. Hi, everyone. We, we just had a, a great great fun in our in our green room. Sometimes sometimes I wish that people could participate in our, our green room because it's uh, it's great when you don't know people. You you go uh, live with them, um, and it, it's great to meet people face to face. Of course, it's great to meet people face to face in the in, a, in the proper world. But actually, with the, with Zoom, if you can break down barriers. You can find out people's personalities really quickly. And everyone, we've got some great personalities here with uh, with Claire and uh, and, and Chris. So we have got a really interesting uh, broadcast today, and it's all about. CPI. Um, Chris, do, do you want to just um, um, tell tell everyone who CPI is, and then what I'll do is, if it's okay, especially for those on the podcast, I just want to read out some some a bit more defined information so they can really get a feel for for yourself for for Claire and CPI. But Chris, can you just start us off? Who are CPI, please? So CPI stands for the Centre for Process Innovation. Um, and, and what are we? We're an organisation that was founded in two thousand and four uh, by the remnants of ICI up in the northeast. Uh, and it was spearheaded by the sort of uh, regional development agency. And it was to create an innovation centre to support the process industries. And all these words don't mean much to, to most people. But innovation in the terms of technical development is the bit that you have to do to get it out of a test tube to get it into the marketplace. It's that whole stage. It's about scale up. It's about using a, a range of different engineers and scientists and project managers and technical professionals uh, to, to to combine their knowledge to get that widget or piece of technology from very, very small scale in the lab to either tons of scale or thousands of units or whatever it is that you get it out into the marketplace. Yeah. And if you're an SME on that journey, typically finding capital to actually do this stuff is really difficult. Yeah. Building your own labs is really expensive. Recruiting a team of a dozen or more engineers and scientists uh, takes years. Uh, but what you're able to do with organisations like CPI, which are known as a research and technology organisation, an RTO, and we're a member of the, the High Value Manufacturing Catapult in the UK. So there are many of organisations like CPI in the UK. Um, as you come in, knock on the door, ex talk to us, explain what your problems and challenges are. And then we, we work out a way to work with you and support you through various different funding mechanisms to get your idea from the lab or even sometimes before the lab, it might only just be a concept or an idea. Yeah. Using our staff and using the knowledge and, and you know centuries of experience that our staff have got in, in commercializing products and, and processes and technologies and get that to a scale where you can actually then take it to market and test your product in the marketplace. Uh, and it's everything. We do it from food. We do it with medicine. We do it with electronics. We do it with detergents and washing up liquids. We do it with chocolate. Uh, we do it with different medical uh, medical professionals. We do it with wearables and things like the, the trackers and diabetes trackers and uh, blood lactate trackers and all sorts of different bits and pieces. So we have quite a broad spectrum within the process industries that we support in CPI. We're about 600 staff with about 200 million pounds worth of assets actually being installed that you can access. So imagine just the resources that's available to you with 200 million pounds worth of kit on the ground and 600 staff who know how to use it. That's the kind of resource that's available. Chris, Chris, can I just can I just congratulate you? That's one of the best intros I've, I've I've ever had. And I was just looking at the stuff that I've got printed up on the, on, on, and the, the thought of me actually having to present it and, and try to go toe to toe with you, I don't think we're going to because Claire, he's really good. Oh, Chris, isn't he? He, yeah. he puts it over really well. 
Yeah, he did. Chris did put it over really well. I, I mean, in, in summary, our role is to take a great idea and help to turn it into a reality. So, so we sit in, in between kind of research and invention and the commercial market and we're, we're all around kind of translating ideas and helping them to become, to helping an idea to become a reality. Excellent. And that's why we wanted to get uh, Chris and Claire on today, because um, we wanted to get a bit more of an understanding as to this whole link between industry, acad academia and also food in innovation. Because if there's one thing that we've learned over the last couple of, couple of years is that we need to innovate, we need to collaborate, we need to keep striving forward because it is the future. And if you want to be in the future, you've got to be part of the future. But let's introduce um, um, our, our two guests here uh, uh, today uh, correctly. So we've got Claire Trippett, who's the Chief Technologist for Biologicals for CPI, and we've got Chris. Chris Wardrop, General Manager for Commercial Oper Operations. Claire, just uh, we always have a, um, a really eclectic mix over and above people from the trade dial dialing in, and everyone's really interested as to, as to people's background. Claire, how did you become involved with CPI? What, what's your background, please? So my background is a mixture of microbiology, biotechnology, um, and, and bioprocessing. So I've worked in the industry for um, around like over 15 years now um, in all sorts of things, kind of biopharmaceuticals and um, um, some agri-tech um, companies. And yeah, I, I joined CPI around eight years ago. Um, and I'm, yeah, I, I look after a, a couple of um, strategic areas for the company. Yeah, I, I'm always I'm always so impressed with people like yourself. I say to Chris in, um, in the green room that my father was a do doctor of biochemistry, and I remember on one of my um, placement weeks when I was at Comprehensive, going to my fa father's lab and just not having an understanding. The, the genetic gene pool, intelligence-wise, mi miss me. Hopefully, my, my my kids have got it. But I think people who've got your ability, your intellectual ability to to be able to understand the science, but also to translate it to Luddites like me to 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 to, to the sector. To also to create the, the the benefit for for one and all is is, is very impressive. Is is it a, is it a sector? Is it a career, Claire, that you would recommend to our, to our younger generation or, or even those um, mature individuals who are looking to re retrain? What do you think? Oh, I would I would absolutely recommend it. it it's such an interesting field. There's so much to learn all the time, um, and it's really like where 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 I work at CPI, um, it, it's kind of really rewarding as well because you're helping um, companies to grow. So. Fantastic. And so if, if there was a, a younger individual just doing the, their A-levels or perhaps doing a, an apprenticeship, if they wanted to get into this, this area to, to, to shadow you in, in some respects, what, what do you think, where should they be going? Uh, the university route, uh, the, the apprenticeship route, what, what, what would your advice be, please? I think you could go either way. I mean, I, I went the kind of the classic university route, but apprenticeship route as well is, yeah. is um, my apologies, I'm just going to. No, don't worry, we love the jeopardy. <laughs> you, 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 you carry on. If, if anything, we'll, we'll answer the emails for you live. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I know it's good, but I, I, I would recommend kind of, yeah, as you say, getting some shadowing if possible, getting some hands-on experience. Yeah, there's, and there's one thing, again, that we've learned over the broadcast, Claire and Chris, is mentorship. I, I don't know about you, Chris, but I didn't have many, many mentors when I was going through my career, but there's, there's this real lovely weight of... Um, of charitability I, I see from senior people that are really keen to engage with younger individuals who do seem to be a lot more competent than I, I was at that, their age, but just to give them um, a, a steer to point them in the, in the right direction career-wise. Chris, are you seeing that as well? Yeah, well, I mean, we do both internal and external mentorship within CPI, and it's something that we actively promote. So I'm a, I'm a chemical engineer by training, so I'm a member of the Institute of Chemical Engineers. 
and I mentor people through that career path and, and get guys, you know, basically, Claire mentioned the, the apprentices. When you graduate as a chemical engineer, you've just proved you can learn the maths and you have some understanding of the physics. You then are basically starting your apprenticeship as a chemical engineer and have to go through a four or five year journey proving you can do stuff in the real world to actually become chartered. Um, and the, the people like myself get put in place as mentors for the people on that chartership journey. And we do that with both people internally and externally to CPI. But we also have quite an extensive mentorship program within CPI Excellent. For, the, for the other functions. So we have a lot of apprentices. We must have 30 or 40 apprentices in that 600 staff wow. across the whole of CPI, covering a broad array of functions, whether it's administration through microbiology or chemical engineers. Uh, so, so we have you know a broad apprenticeship program that we support. And, and within CPI, even the young professionals that are already graduates can get appointed mentors. And then I know there are a number of people that take mentorship roles on as part of this, our STEM outreach within CPI. Yeah. So when Claire mentioned that there's, there's a whole plethora of things that can be going on, CPI sees its social responsibility and the spreading of you know, what we do and the impact that we deliver uh, in, in, in the world uh, as an organisation that has a purpose, both to spread science and engineering, but also deliver sort of health, health to the planet and health to people in terms of what we do and what we deliver for our customers. And, and that's so, so impressive. I, I do get frustrated sometimes with the agriculture and the fresh food sectors in, in comparison to, to, say, the engineering sectors who are, who are, who are very well geared, bossed at um, growing their own um, and, and bringing the, those, those individuals. Um, there's, in, well, there's this ongoing problem within, within ag and, and food that because it's so fast paced, it's really difficult for some companies to, to set aside budgets even for, to allow that, that training. But if you look at the likes of CPI, if we can learn from you and that, that number of apprentice, apprentices that you've got within the business is, a, is, is deeply impressive. And, then, and you will, both of you will have seen that standard graph from the likes of Cranfield University showing that um, the companies that uh, put investment into their staff in the way of training development see better uh, ongoing uh, increased turnover and increased uh, profitability but there's still some people who don't see the benefit of that because it's not producing the role the results uh, today or, or tomorrow and yes it is a long-term thing but the, the, again just majoring on it the fact that you've got 30 plus apprenticeships uh, within in your you're basically growing your own you, you're planting that seed for, for, for the future aren't you and and also with the issue of um, staff uh, re recruitment that we're all um, suffering across the board if you can grow your own for, for, for the future for the you're going to you're going to make yourself um, future proof do you think Claire? yeah absolutely i think especially in science it's really important to have yes. that pipeline of skills and talent coming through all the time and cpi are really we're, we're really keen to see how we can support that as well yeah. really creating the workforce of the future is absolutely a priority well, well done, Claire. i think you've, you've stolen the, the line the line of the broadcast creating the work the, the, the uh the, the workforce <laughs> of the future well done so to so just segue to um that and, and and thank you i, I didn't mean us to go down that route but again it's really interesting to find out how you're constructed um internally because again it's another reason why why we we need to be um al aligned to you because we know you're going to be here for the long term because the the type of people that you've got and the type of training that you're doing internally but let, let's look externally how, how do you just support industry and and academia with um with food innovation and, and, and guys just just a segue on that I, I always come up with this the same phrase and we, we did on a recent broadcast that we host for a great group called women in food and farming and we had um, a lovely lady from um, uh, a, a concern called NIAB who do a lot of um, plant and, uh, and seed research and, and we were sort of having an argument about 
in Holland, they have a thing called the Dutch Diamond, where there's a very strong link between government, education and trade. And it's a lovely virtual signal um, um, system set up so that everyone benefits, that government will support education has that funding and they support industry and industry supports the, uh, the academia and, um, and, and the government. Um, we don't tend to see that too much, he says, in our slightly fractured uh, government system at the moment. Let's, let's part, part that one. Um, but, but again, that, that's, um, the, the conversation that was, that was had on this recent broadcast was, well, don't worry about the government. We need um, uh, institutions or organisations who can actually drive things further forward um, and just push out any roadblocks ahead. And I get the feeling that CPI is that. So just how, how, does, how, how does CPI support industry and, and academia with, with food innovation? Chris, you go first. It's, it's evolving is the best way of, of putting it. So if you look at what CPI does and the kind of ecosystems that we live within, we've worked, uh, we have two major sources of income into CPI. Uh, whilst we're a, a kind of social enterprise with a purpose, uh, we, we do have to generate a profit and we reinvest that back into, into the company for, for, for training of our staff and new capabilities and advances. But what we do is we either work on publicly funded grants and projects where we collaborate with industry or we work directly with industry, usually on a one-to-one -one style arrangement. What we're trying to do because of the, the time and energy it takes and the uncertainty in, in landing public money in the form of grants uh, is, is kind of replicate that collaborative model in the commercial space where we identify sort of challenges and problems within specific industries or within specific sectors and markets and, and, and work out who shares that problem. And rather than each of them trying to do it and fix it individually, yes. they can share the cost and the price. But likewise, CPI doesn't have all of the answers. But what we've found over the last 15, 20 years is we're fantastic at convening uh, all the different organisations like ourselves. So it's simplistically and a bit glibly, come and talk to CPI. We don't have all the answers and we can't do everything, but we've usually got a mate who has or who can. And, and we will bring that together because one of the biggest things that industry has, one of the biggest challenges industry and academia have is often they don't know who to talk to and they don't have time to talk to an entire landscape of uh, small, medium enterprises, other research and technology organisations or other academics to understand who is doing what. Yet organisations like CPI and CPI specifically takes that as part of our remit and our role, uh, raison d'etre and role to be here to understand what's going on in the landscape so we can connect the dots because it's connecting the dots that makes us powerful and it makes the, uh, the whole equal to more than the sum of the parts. Well done, Chris. And Claire, I don't know if you find the same thing. I find a lot of um, senior level commercial leaders are, are actually um, sort of commercially lonely. Um, they're, they're at such a pinnacle in, in their organisation and their, their, their career. It's really difficult to get information. And, and the, the internet, especially in our trade, is just so awash with so much content. And it's really difficult to get established. So, so what Chris was saying about um, that, that within your network, if you don't have the answer, you, you may have the answer. To me, Claire, that, that resonates. And Claire, you, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I think just to echo what Chris has said, we one one of the the things that we can help with at CPI is connecting kind of it's connecting industry, it's connecting like what's going on in the universities, what's going on with government, and bringing all those parties together. So that, like often companies working in the sector, they'll need access to kind of funding, so we can help with that, and they'll need someone to talk to to help guide them in the right direction. Like if we're developing a manufacturing process for them, they might need advice on how to scale that up. So we can we can help help with all those things and help sift down to kind of get to the important information as quickly as possible. 
and, and, and help me here and feel free to, to, to um, slap me down if, I, if I'm using the wrong terminology. Um, is CPI a, a bit like a, a, a broker? So if, if an if a individual or a company's got a, um, an, an issue, say um, that they've got a food innovation um, uh, element that they're struggling on, would they come to you and, and you would look to broker out the solution? Or, and would you potentially have the, the resources internally within CPI to create that solution, but you might bring in collaborative partners? Claire, how would it work, please? No, absolutely. I'd say we're, we're like a facilitator, really. A, a company can come to us and, and we'll help to facilitate connecting with other partners where it's needed. But like you say, we can also, we've got access to the facilities and expertise in-house as well um, to support projects across a whole range of kind of food and feed projects. So it's definitely welcome, as you say. Yep. And, and, and Chris, are you seeing that this, this collaboration with the likes of universities, it, is that starting to gather more momentum because we're picking up that uh, universities are keen to to assist um, uh, external industry to gain a, an additional income, but also they've got this amazing resource of all of these very high caliber students, whether they be degree or or, or PhD level, that they're really keen to, to to get involved. So, are you seeing more collaboration with universities, Chris? Where we tend to collaborate with universities is at the point at which they're spinning things out. Ah. So, so, so they're, they're involved a lot in various networks that we work together in, in, in consulting and understanding what's going on. Quite often we can go to some universities with specific challenges or problems and utilize some of their infrastructure and some of their, their, their skill sets and knowledge. Uh, we collaborate on some larger grants potentially with universities. Uh, but these could be more Horizon Europe style style projects. It's difficult for us to collaborate directly with universities in the UK on public grants just because we tend to eat from the same pie within the grant and you yeah. need industry engagement in there. So what we tend to do is, is support the spin outs from those universities. And we have a, a, a part of CPI called CPI Enterprise, which actually sits in the venture capital space. Okay. And it, it's the bridge between um SMEs and small companies, and it can enable them through its network of you know several hundred venture capital firms to to, to put to introduce the right firms that are looking for uh, the, the right kind of investments that we see with the SMEs. So not only are we helping the companies do their technical development and technical due diligence, we can help them in the marketplace to access various different kinds of funding as well. Yeah, so I, I love that. It's, it's almost like uh, universities uh, stick to the knitting, stick to what you're good at, uh, and then deploy the professionals like, like yourselves when when they've got uh, a, 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 a product, an element to spin out. It, it, it's 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 different people and different experiences ask different questions at the different points of the scale up. Yeah, and you need you, you need levels of experience and knowledge and things to get you. You know, I wouldn't go into a blue sky research program because yeah. that's not how I think. I tend to start with how do I make a thousand tons of something and work backwards to the yeah. laboratory, uh, not the other way out. So it's you come at it with your experiences and your knowledge, and what you really want to do is is avoid repeating mistakes. So you want yeah. people that have done the same thing, albeit in slightly different contexts, a dozen times before, because you'll get to the answer faster. And anyone that, whether you're on a farm or whether you're in a, coming out of the universities or you're in a company or a large corporate small organisation, the reality is the amount of money you spend to get your product to market dictates the return on that investment uh, and the number of the amount of risk that you've got. So what you need to do is get to market as quickly as possible for the least amount of money invested as possible because it is that time to market that's critical because yeah. this mover advantage and everything else. So getting the right people involved at the right time, whether yeah. that's academia at the lower, are you familiar with the term technology readiness levels? Have you yes. ever heard of that one? Yeah. So yeah. You know, university is fantastic in TRLs one through three, one through four, yeah. and like CPI kick in really between TRLs three through eight. Yeah. 
yeah, and we, okay. we, we we overlap, and then and then we do what we do best. Yeah, yeah. I did. You know, I wish there were some sectors that engaged with the with yourselves pre- previously. Um, the likes of vertical farming, which is a conversation for for another day. But there's so many duplicated businesses all doing the same thing, trying to learn the new new technology. So much money going into it, and so much money being uh, be, being being burnt. But as I said, that's a conversation for another day. It's just uh, uh, what what. One of, one of my uh, pet hobbies at the moment. So, so cellular agricultural innovations. We were talking in the green room um, about this and I, I held you back from both, both of you giving me um, some defined um, um, answers on this. But, but we're really interested to find out more about the agricultural innovation side on, on this cellular level. So, so Claire, for a second to ask, what, what, what is this? And how does it operate? Why, why should we care? And, and I suppose also um, with everything going on about the, the environment and the respect of sustainability, regenerative agriculture, carbon neutrality, why, why is this going to be important for the, for the environment? Claire, I'll give you lots of questions. Shall we, shall we just go for the big one? Cellular agricultural innovations. Talk us through that, please, Claire. Okay, sure. Yeah, cellular agriculture is like, it's a new and, and really exciting area of science. And what it does is allows us to create animal products um, through a different route from raising livestock. So we're creating animal products using fermentation and cell culture instead of like through raising animals so but I guess we're effectively kind of farming cells instead of animals and the idea is that we make these products that are identical to as if they'd come from an animal so obviously there's lots of kind of um, imitation products on the market and and they're fantastic but there's the potential that we could make something that's identical so maybe like it should it may be more desirable it might have the same kind of taste the same smell the same like mouthfeel it might kind of cook the same um, so, it, like, so I guess one, one of the more well-known um, parts of cellular agriculture is kind of cultured meat or cultivated meat. And a lot of the time when people hear like that word, like cultured meat, they might like recoil in horror and think it sounds like really, really scary. Um, but cultured meat is, it's like, it's genuine animal meat that should be identical to conventional meat. Um, and it, it, it's grown through cell culture. And the, the idea of cultured meat actually isn't that new. So Winston Churchill actually predicted it as far back as 1931. There's quite do that. Yeah, I know. There's this like quite famous quote where it, it was something along the lines of escaping the absurdity of, of growing a whole chicken to eat the breast of our wing and by by growing bits of chicken in a suitable in a suitable media. And like um like a, a few a couple of decades ago back in the noughties, there was some research done on cultured meat to see if it might be suitable, like something that we could, you know, use in space travel, like so astronauts could have <laughs> <some> meat <laughs> to have on on their way to Mars. Um, so it's been around for a while, the concept, um, but it, it's it's kind of more recently in, in, in maybe the past kind of 10 years that we've really started to, to progress this area. Um, you, back... The first culture meat burger was developed and it was cooked and tasted on live TV and it was really expensive. It was like over $300,000 um, to create this burger. But now, now the, the sector has really grown, and there's dozens of companies in in the space, and loads of investment. And and like just a couple of years ago, the first ever cultured meat product was like actually kind of served in a restaurant that was in Singapore, where the first regulatory approval was, and that was chicken nuggets. <laughs> so cultured chicken <laughs> in Singapore in 2020, and it was a massive landmark for the industry. So it's yeah, I mean it's quite to to make cultured meat you. So, sorry, Max, did you want to say something? No, 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 okay, okay, okay carry on, carry on. Oh, yeah, so to make cultured meat, we can, you have to take a sample of cells from an animal in the first place, but you can do this through kind of a harmless biopsy. So if we wanted to grow 
beef. We need some cells from a cow. If we wanted to grow pork, some cells from a, from a pig, like a chicken, some cells from a chicken. But then you can take these cells and create like what we call a cell bank. So you wouldn't have to keep going back to the animal. And then you grow, grow the cells up in like what we call a bioreactor, which I think something similar to like what we would grow, make beer in um, yeah. kind of a, like a big a big metal bioreactor and then you feed it with um, growth media which has got all the, like, the vitamins and nutrients and everything that a cell needs to grow and survive and then yeah and then you can harvest that and use it as a food ingredient the, and, and Claire where I'm fascinated in this, this area uh, was it two weeks ago uh, we went to a UK farming event called Groundswell and it's a relatively new event and it's all about uh, regenerative agriculture and sustainability um, and, and they have a, a number of key speakers there and they had uh, Mr Dimbleby there of the National Food Strategy um, and he was just giving his uh, synopsis of um, uh, the, the white paper that was sort of coming through uh, government as to his recommendations on the back of the National Food Strategy. There, there must have been 500 people in this um, uh, circus tent. Um, and he showed a slide that I've never seen before, uh, which is um, basically it was a Venn diagram. And it was uh, the, the weight of all the people in the world and the weight of all the animals in the world. And if, if I knew we were going down this way, I would have, um, I would have grabbed grab the graph because we, we videoed it but but um, off the top of my head it was something that in the region of this eight times more weight of animals in the whole world mm -hmm. sitting on the planet than there are um, of actual humans and just the environmental cost of that is is obviously um, significant and um, he was um, stated within the national food strategy that within the UK we need to do something that yes there's there's land that uh, is ripe for um, animal production but if there were uh, workarounds uh, to still uh, provide this protein, but without the environmental impact, because it's just getting bigger and bigger. So, so, so Claire, that that resonates. That that brings to to the technology that you're in, in, involved with. It, it, Claire, direct direct question. Do you, do you think it's? I just ask it. Do you think it's a gimmick, or is it going to be here for the for the for the long term? Um, five years, ten years, uh, fifteen years down. The, do you think we're going to be seeing more cellular agriculture on um, products on on our on our shelves rather than traditional um, like livestock uh, rare, rare product? What, what do you think? I do. I absolutely do. I think they'll. I don't think with cellular agriculture, it's aiming to displace meat um, entirely. I think there's room for the two to coexist alongside each other. But there's really you know, most of us love to eat animal products and. Um, I love chips on toast, but there's some really compelling reasons why we want to look at alternative methods of, of using, of, to, to producing these. Like you said, there's like food security. So the population of the, the, the earth is projected to be, what, what is it now? It's almost 10 billion by the year to, to like 2050. So this is like an extra billion people. Like how, how can we, um, how can we feed all these? How can we feed the extra billion people in a way that's like sustainable and not causing any more damage to the earth, but that's also like safe and like it tastes good as well? There's like the whole efficient, like part of the problem is the efficiency with um, using animals for food. So animal agriculture is really inefficient way of yep. producing food for us to eat. Like as an example, if you take a, a chicken, like an, a chicken is one of the most optimized systems. Yep in terms of livestock for, for producing meat, that chicken has to eat nine calories of food to produce one calorie of food for us to eat. Because chicken, obviously the chicken needs calories to do its own thing and to, to, to exist. Um, so it's quite, an, and then if you look at something like a cow, that's even worse, like a oh, cow. It's like 20 to one or something. So the cow would have to eat like 20 kilograms of grain to make one kilogram. 
a thief, and then you've got all the, the knock-on effects, so there's all the, the kind of land and water and transport associated with, um, with raising those animals, and then the greenhouse gas emissions as well, so it, it's, I mean, if, if you look, if you look at the data, like the published figures, it's thought that it's between kind of 14 and 18 percent of all of global greenhouse gas emissions come from come from livestock, which is yep. it's a staggering amount. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I could go on and on. Deforestation. Totally. It's, it's, I, I, within the UK, I, I think we've got the, the animal production systems re relatively well um, set up, and especially the, the high care nature. I, I worry about the, the, the likes of the feedlots in some parts of, um, of America because they just it's just a, on, on, a, on a factory scale operation. So, so for, for this to be a possible solution and environmentally uh, for it to be of, of benefit on, on a global basis, it's really exciting. And what about precision fermentation, Claire? Can, can you see that segueing um, a lot alongside selling agriculture? Is this a, another technology that's keeping pace? Yeah, absolutely. Precision <clears throat> precision fermentation is actually like a type of cellular agriculture. Um, so precision fermentation is using um, my microbes really as factories to produce animal proteins um, so it, it's it's through a, a, a method that's really well known in the biotech industry as recombinant protein expression which is not like the catchiest term ever but th this is what we know it as in the biotech industry and it's been used for decades it's really safe it's been used for decades in the food industry like for example making rennet so like, we used to get rennet from like the lining of calf stomachs which which is not um not kind of a sustainable way to produce it but now now we produce recombinant rennet and um, like insulin as well that's another example so Absolutely. when you look at animal yeah if you look at like, like eggs it's got the albumin protein if you look yeah. at cheese it's whey and casein proteins and you can take like the, the the gene the genetic code for those proteins put it in a microorganism something like a yeast and because all cells will read that genetic code in the same way um where, so whether that gene is sitting in a, a cow producing and um, kind of cheese proteins or whether it's eating in a, a, a yeast cell um, it, you will end up with the same product so you'll end, you'll end up with an identical protein yeah. Yeah, that can be used as an ingredient so, so, so again the future is very bright uh, for, the, for this area of technology uh, be it cellular agriculture or precision fermentation so that's got to be a benefit to, to, the, to the consumer clan it's got to be a benefit to us all environmentally yeah, I think so. Like the, the predictions, the predictions are that the, the environmental footprint for these technologies would be much lower than as if those as if those same products were produced through animals. There's also benefits for, for humans as well with cultured meat and with precision fermentation. You get a, a really like safe, highly purified um, kind of product. It's much less expensive as well well i guess cultured meat it's maybe not less expensive at the moment but some of the precision fermentation products yeah. Yeah. Things in it. so yeah i i, I uh, claire uh, chris i just always remember that great quote from um uh oh no i, I, I won't mention because it's, it's it's probably um no, no terry wogan um if you remember when he was on the on the radio he used to have some great anecdotes and uh i'm just thinking about uh, a war's advice not to eat red red meat and so on and so forth and there was a there was a, a, a daughter who'd uh, rung in to say that her 92 year old uh, father been uh, recommended by the doctor to stop smoking stop eating red meat and stop drinking uh, red wine and so the doctor uh, so the daughter said to, to the father so what have you done father and father said i've changed my doctor <laughs> great great way rounded but we've also just this uh, this this term I've, I've been using a lot about um driving societal change i think there's a again it's a conversation 
for another time but there's there's we are sort of caught in this food mechanism where it's all about high fat high high sugar and do we expect the consumer to to, to change overnight or do we have to positively influence them like uh, the, the ban on tobacco like seat belts or, or and if we can um, show them other methods to to being healthy that's going to be good good for them and be less of a burden on, on the healthcare systems and just on that side um team what about alternative proteins uh, so we picked up that there's a there's a possibility of like using co2 to create protein for, for, for food uh, chris is this is this a thing um, is this something we can also get excited about yeah i mean if you go back the 1960-odd, when NASA was going to put someone in, in, in space and they were thinking about how to feed it, Claire's already touched on it, uh, and they, they postulated it about cellular agriculture. It was actually what they were doing in the 1960s to look at how the feed astronauts have been space. Um, you know, if you think about if you're on a vehicle, if you're in a submarine or you're in a, 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 in a spaceship, what have you got? You've got a bit of water, you've got some CO2, and you've probably got loads of power. Uh, if you put those three things together uh, with the right microbe, you can actually generate proteins with the right chain lengths and the right compositions that are that are uh, appropriate now whether appetizing or not it's a different matter but they've got the right nutritional value to to for what humans need to consume uh, as a consequence of that there are now several companies around the world looking at growing microbes using a range of different feedstocks so we can use co2 that has to be used in conjunction with hydrogen uh, you can use methane or you can use things like sugar and methanol to actually just grow bacteria in in, in fermenters or fermentation um, to produce um, thousands of tons effectively wow. of a product that can be used to substitute um, protein in our diets. So if you're having a shop-bought lasagna or a shop-bought sausage roll or other, other things like this, you wouldn't notice that the protein content had been exchanged. So instead of it being a meat-derived protein, it was an alternative protein from a microbe. As long as the texture was the same, the, the, the taste was the same, uh, you we wouldn't notice. And you know, there's companies out there already doing it. Uh, one of the biggest products that's been in, in the supermarkets for decades is corn you know that you can yeah. even find that in any supermarket in the world that is an alternative protein it's an alternative protein that was isolated and, uh, and has been produced here on teesside in fact since the mid-1980s uh, and it's in sausages it's in cooked ham it's in mints it's you know th th there's a wide range of products that you can get in any supermarket uh, that are manufactured from corn um, but there are other companies now around the world uh, developing other bacteria and these are naturally occurring bacteria that if you put them in the right environment with the right nutrients you get to grow them you harvest them and they've got protein contents that are comparable to what we would eat and, and, and utilize from meat uh, and it's not just what we would have for food uh, they're also being used as animal feed so one of, yeah. one of CPI's customers that's, that, that, that's a fantastic success story uh, came to us in 2015 with a challenge. They wanted to do this scale up. They were in a small laboratory in the West Coast of America, and they wanted and they had a vision of being able to, 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 to feed uh, and support the aquaculture industry. So a large uh, aquaculture farming industry where th there are some unsustainable practices using uh, soya meal or fish or fish meal to feed to feed the aquaculture uh, harvest the fish, salmon and the like. Uh, and, and they're using methane to, to grow bacteria, which can be formulated and displace soya of fish meal uh, in, 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 in farming salmon in Scotland and these things. So we've worked with this company for the last six years and delighted that they're, they're in the process of constructing their first commercial plant. 
uh, and that's going through commissioning now. So we've gone from producing kilos of product in the lab with them to, to them constructing a plant that will produce 20,000 tonnes. Yeah. That is yeah, a commercially viable scale of, of, of production. And, 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 and if you think the, the average um, supermarket has 35,000 different lines of, of product, the volume, just in the UK alone, of uh, feeding 72 uh, million people, the volume of commodity product that has to go into uh, creating that, that end product. And that's just the, the, um, the UK, just, just jumping around, little old Ghana in West Africa, is 22 million people. Just when, when you actually stop and, and think about it, Claire, Chris, the, the amount of volume of product going in. So with your... Um, expertise and your technology if you can just influence one sector such as, such as that example that you, you give the, the 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 sort of the the, the butterfly effect is, is monumental but huge chris it, it, it is i mean just just to put it into context calm down so everyone's emission it, it's difficult to put it into context but um you know people are aware of uh, uh climate change uh, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide. Just to put it into, uh, into context, we're shifting from using uh, combustion engines to electric cars by 2030, 2035, and we're moving that out of the way. Um, eight sirloin steaks, typical steak that you'll get to be an eight-ounce steak. Sirloin steak's about 50% protein. So if I take eight sirloin steaks, I've got about one kilogram of protein from, from, from beef cattle. Yeah. The amount of the meat that is being produced there is the equivalent to driving over a thousand miles in your average family car. Wow. So the, the carbon dioxide emissions from eight sirloin steaks, which is basically you and your seven mates going out on a, on a weekend, or if, if you and I both took our families out, we'd do one and a half times that in terms of uh, sirloin steaks. Um, it's the equivalent of driving over a thousand miles, yet we're banning the use of, you know, we're slowly eliminating the use of petrol engines and diesel engines mm. in, in vehicles. But that's a fraction of a cow. Yeah. In terms yeah. of exploring sticks, a small yeah. fraction of a cow. Yeah. So, 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 so you can see the kind of carbon emissions that are associated with the agricultural sector. So if you can start nibbling away at that in terms of some of the lower value applications uh, and, and reduce some of that burden uh, that, that is it within the agri-food sector right now, um, then you can start to move the needle yeah. uh, in societal behaviour. And like I say, in things like lasagnas and hot pots and all these other kinds of you know, formulated products uh, that, that, that come to us complete, um, you're not looking for a, a, a nice, juicy, robust sirloin steak. Yeah. You know, so that's where alternative proteins can really kick in and make a difference in the food sector. So it is the future. It feels like it's it feels like it's evolution, not revolution, because there'll be there'll be some people I know that will be a bit, um, I'll just say, it, frightened um, about about this change. But then again, um, Claire, you you mentioned the likes of think uh, penicillin. You, you look how that was uh, that was come about. This just feels like a natural evolution again. That's why we need the expertise from 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 yourself, from CPR, from your from your colleagues to to take us to. This next stage, because we've all got to create. Chris, you're, you're stealing my phrase now. We've all got to create this societal change, especially on an environmental basis, by adopting this technology. Within five, ten years, it's not going to be. It's not going to be seen as technology. It's just going to be seen as the norm, isn't it? Like a number of products are today. We've just got to get to that next stage. And Chris, I love your example of the, of the likes of the electric car. It's just. It is just the process that 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 we're we're, we're going down. So, so you're you're both confident, Claire. Claire, you're you're confident that we will see this positive wholesale change through the likes of CPI on, on, a, on, a, on a benefit to the consumer, but also perhaps more importantly, environmentally. So Claire, you're confident? 
yeah, I'm, I'm very confident we'll see this change. I think we're already seeing it now. I think we're seeing a shift in, um, in, in, in how people are approaching the way they eat these products. I think, I mean, you, there's a huge increase in veganism. Um, we're seeing more and more kind of alternative products and like plant-based products in the in the in, in the shops to buy so i definitely think I, I definitely think there's a shift in consumerism and i think that technology is getting more and more sophisticated all the time when we can if we can offer um if we can offer a piece of meat that is identical to as if it comes from an animal but it has been produced in a different way you know a much a much lower kind of environmental footprint way you know i mean i know which one i would choose but um I think it's just giving people that choice. Yeah. And, but, but again, um, it's, it's interesting, just a slight segue. We're, we're picking up that the, the likes of the conventional arable cropping within the UK of, say, milling wheat, there's more, we're eating less and less bread. Um, and so there isn't that requirement for that product. And, and especially with the perhaps uh, the, the demise of, of conventional livestock um, rearing, um, that farmers may actually be um, uh, supported, encouraged to grow different crops uh, for, for different market needs. Again, it's this, this evolution, not revolution. And just on the sustainability bit, uh, plant and animal uh, micro, micro, microbiomes, how, how can we harness those? Teach me, how can we harness those in respect of uh, food sustainability, Claire? Oh, every, everyone, we always have this, uh, Chris, we, we, we knew it was going to happen. We we're going to have that jeopardy. So it's, so we just, just lost Claire. Claire coming back, back in as, uh, as, as we get another 50p in the meter her in. Chris, what, what's your view on, on, on that element about food sustainability? Oh, microbiome is quite a, a, a new concept. And we all have microbiome. We have microbiome in our stomach. It's what helps us digest our food. We have a microbiome in our mouths. We have a microbiome on our hands. It's just how we live symbiotically with uh, the flora and fauna that's in the environment everywhere, the microbes that we can't see. We cannot live without microbes. Uh, you know, they, they, they operate complementary to us. We get ill with when the wrong microbe gets in the wrong place or the right microbe gets in the wrong place. So if you get a cut in your hand and it gets infected, it's just your skin microbiome's got in your hand yeah. and, it, and it shouldn't be inside your skin. Every plant, every animal, and as I said, our cells carry a microbiome. So one of the things that, that's happening and, and it is coming through now with food and feed is how these microbes and, can be used uh, to, to supplement and complement what's in our tummies. So you'll, all, you'll have all heard about prebiotics and probiotics and the supplements that you can take and, and using, you know, taking fiber in your diet because the fiber is good carbohydrate that feeds the microbiome uh, versus, you know, simple sugars, which feed the nasty bugs that promotes the nasty bugs to grow, those kinds of things. Well, when you actually go out on a farm, every plant has its own microbiome as well around its leaves, around its roots. And what you're able to do is, is actually use bacteria in an enhanced way to promote the natural microbiome around the plant to displace things like fertilizers and pesticides. So you can actually use a biostimulant that, that's, that's, you know, you caught the seed, plant the seed, the seed grows, the, the microbiome that you put on the seed grows with the plant. And then all of a sudden the plant has an enhanced ability to fix nitrogen from the soil or fix nitrogen from the air and needs less pesticides and needs less uh, fertilizer to enable it to grow to the, the target yield or beyond the yield, um, you know, just by using nature's remedies uh, in, a, in a more concentrated way. And there's a number of organizations out there that have started to do that. And we work with CHAP uh, and a number of the agricultural institutes in the UK looking at 
you know, what companies are out there, what organisms are out there that can support the UK crops and the UK harvest to actually start displacing that. And it's even more important uh, in the way that, you know, the world's going at the minute with the way the gas price has gone. Yeah. Price of fertiliser is directly linked to the price of natural gas. The price of your food is directly linked to the price of natural gas or the, the, the fertiliser. So we're seeing escalation in prices of food as a consequence of uh, the fertiliser that's having to go on there, the cost of the fuel to get to get it from farm to, to the supermarket and so on and so forth. If we can find ways to detach yeah. our food system from crude oil or you know, yeah. fossil fuel, we enhance not only the sustainability and reduce the carbon emissions, but we start to give ourselves some food security and some pricing security moving forward. Yeah. Uh, and we do that through the, the evolution of these technologies, which, let's be honest, is just what nature does anyway. We're just understanding it a bit better and then promoting it and, and, and enhancing what nature does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, evolution again. Yeah, years ago, the trick is to complement nature, not fight it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chris, you're making me smile again, because um, a, a week ago um, on the uh, lovely farm estate that I live in, um, uh, in Suffolk, uh, we had a, a farm walk and they're, they're very kind of, they give us a farm walk every year. And they, they were explaining to, to everyone in the village about how the likes of sugar beet, uh, the seed used to be uh, coated. Rooted in, in a really nasty uh, mixture of stuff to to stop um, um, aphids, but the problem was this, um, that that uh, could potentially hurt, hurt buzzy bees. So uh, rightly so, that chemical got um, got banned. But then um, it didn't give the protection to the plants. So the the the, the farm's director uh, was a huge advocate for uh, this this type of technology to the point of um, they they're running a number of trials with the with the, with companies that need real time data um, on on the floor, so so to speak, because they could see that, that this is going to be going to be the future. And 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 again, it's, it's interesting, Chris, isn't it? In, in sort of adversity, um, people always come up with solutions, isn't it? There's a there's that that mushy phrase about um, uh, never waste a crisis. And, and everything that we've gone through now, and, and the, the, with the likes of uh, particular chemicals uh, being banned or fertilizer costs going, going, going through the roof, we have to find uh, another solution. With this type of technology that you're involved with, um, it, it's, it's again, it's going to be really interesting to see where, where, where it goes. Um, Claire, Claire, for everyone on the podcast, Claire, Claire's back in. We lost to, to, to the gremlins of the internet, but, but she's back. But Claire, my friend, Chris, Chris gave us a, a stellar answer on on. <laughs> On, on that, if, if you want to go for it, feel 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 free. We can we we can we can we can compare your your views on 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 the subject of microbiomes in, in comparison to Chris. Okay, sorry, sorry, I missed you. You must have been discussing about about microbiomes. Yeah, no, I'm sure I'm sure Chris gave a great answer. But um, yeah, I, I I think this this is such an interesting area that we have this whole other kind of world around us that we know as the microbiome, all these different microorganisms, and that we can kind of harness the knowledge about about these microorganisms to. Um, improve productivity and sustainability so improve productivity of like uh, plants and soil and, and animals as well and uh, our own microbiomes as well so if we know which microbes are there if we know what they're doing then we can kind of hack, hack into this and, and um, potentially improve the health of, of animals so microorganisms are, are obviously like everywhere they're the most kind of abundant and longest evolving form of life life on the earth and we and everything else has kind of co-evolved with with microorganisms yeah. Um, yeah. But, Plants and, and so if we, if we look at kind of crop crop improvement in particular, so plants and microbes, and um, they've often got a mutually kind of beneficial relationship. So we sort of, we call this symbiotic, and, and we can work with the microbes and um, that live in the soil around a plant and on the plant and in the and in the plant to kind of enhance the function of the plant. 
um, maybe improve pro productivity, like give the plant extra functions, or um, it, it might be more tolerant to kind of drought or, or more tolerant to kind of um, high salt concentrations. So we can give the plant the plant kind of an, an extra boost through probiotics. Um, with with animal health as well, like kind of animals carry specialized microbiomes. Um, if we look, like, for example, cows, we know we know cows are some of the like worst offenders when it comes to to methane gas, don't we? Like methane gas is like a re a particularly bad, a bad greenhouse gas. But there are people looking at research and how to to work with a cow's microbiome so that it produces less less methane gas. So there's a lot a lot we can do if we tap into the power power of the microbiome um, around us. So, so, so Claire, Chris, uh, we, we majored on, I suppose, let, let me use my unprofessional phrase, the, the physicality um, of the of the lights of um, cellular agriculture, precision um, uh, fermentation, alternative proteins. Is there, is there another link here with AI? Because uh, there's a, a few, going back to my pet subject at, at the moment of uh, vertical farming, there's, there's a view that uh, the only way that the lights of vertical farming is, is to have adoption of um, AI to, uh, to watch, to register and implement um, uh, possible issues and, and the associated solutions in, in real time. With everything that we've talked about today, is there a place for AI to bolt in along this new technology uh, to, to assist, or or am I, I being naive? Chris, thoughts, please. No, I mean, it, AI slash what I'd just call digital in, in a, a typical journey from test tube to market for a biotechnology product is 12 to 15 years, and that's been proven repeatedly over the last decades. Through the digital tools that are now available and the ability to do predictive modeling and you know, enable you to skip forward in some of the TRL stages that would normally require months or years of investment, uh, you're able to utilize digital tools to actually bring that timeline down from 12 to 15 years to somewhere near three to six. Wow. And the well, impact that impressive. it can have of actually mirroring digital against real world and you validate and constantly against the digital model with a, with a single or a small handful of real world experiments instead of a really comprehensive matrix enables you to be quite predictive and accelerate that journey, which means you can have much more impact in the market much, much faster. And of course, once the models are established, you can utilize them for multiple, you can ask them multiple different questions rather than just your if I'm doing one set of experiments to achieve one outcome, that's great. But once I've achieved the outcome, you can't just make that analogous to another question or, or another completely different strain. Whereas the models can be developed such that they can interpret. And you can also get the models to start predicting what products you want, what protein profiles you want, or what formulation characteristic you want, and come back to designing the actual molecule that you can then get out of a microbe and go and look for. So yeah, the, the, the flexibility it gives uh, will enable us to do that innovation journey much, much quicker, which will see impact in the marketplace uh, far faster and, and, and cheap, more cheaply achieved than it has been in the past. And do you think that 10 to 15 year um, growth stage get coming now down to say six or eight, can you see that accelerating even further as as AI, as as, uh, as, as data computation um, accelerates? Can, can you see it, can you see it accelerating for, no. Not for what we're talking about, because you've got to remember a big part of that is designing the kind of equipment yeah. and facility. And you've got to, you know, it takes a certain time to design a bit of steel, procure a bit of steel, dig the con dig the hole in the ground, pour the concrete, and put it in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that there are physical limitations. The AI might be able to come up with an answer, yeah. but I was always taught never quite to believe because computer, what computer says, 
isn't always right without you know, sometimes the um the, the intelligence of the question that you've asked the computer if you simply accept the answer blindly will have issues so you always have to do some validation you always have to do some testing you always have to ensure that what it's telling you is accurate i don't need it to the second decimal place sometimes i just need to know where the answer is 110 or 100 um to know whether the computer's in the right kind of order um but th there is that balance of how fast you can go because when you're hitting food regulation food authorities you have to have sample testing. You know, you have to mix some of the material to get it into a recipe somewhere. So there, there is just a longevity to some of these journeys and how long they may take. Uh, like I say, I think with what we did with Callista, doing it in six years, uh, and we use some element of digital in, in achieving that, and we use modelling and, and and lots of taste panel testing and things. And that company has been very very active and been very successful in in the cash that they've raised from various investors. Uh, they were ambitious and aggressive in terms of they were ready to write checks and commit to doing things. And you know, yeah. AI would have only taken a year or two off that if, if okay. you know, had, they, had they had that at the start of that journey because they had the right attitude to, to, to and, and the vision of what they wanted to deliver and were able and very supportive investors to get you to get you through that journey. So it's yeah. there is a balance. Getting from 10 to 15 years down is is absolutely possible. Reducing it much below that four to six, I would query just because of you, you've got to have the market testing in parallel with the technical evolution. Yeah, yeah, so got it. But I, I suppose with the with the with the, with the weight and the might of the CPI, you can do a, a number of uh, uh, different projects. So if you've got that time scale of six to eight years, it's not like you're doing one project; you do multiple um, projects. Yeah. And, and, and again, that cross fertilization across all those projects. Is yeah, we have about 15, 20 projects on at any Ooh, you you know, between the sort of bio facilities and CPI. We'll have fifteen to twenty projects on the go at any one given point in time because you know there's there's over a hundred staff working in the bio fields at CPI. Yeah, I, I I could talk to both of you all, all day because I, th I think we we we've already lifted the lid a, a little bit of CPI. There's there's more to find find out, but we don't we don't have the, have the time. But but we've got to get companies to engage with you to find out more about you and how how they can collaborate with you. I, I love this word collaboration that uh, we, we've really learned over the last couple of years as, as we're going through this process that we are um, all at the moment. To me, it's all about um, collab collaboration. So, so how can companies collaborate with you? What sort of companies would you like to collaborate with you? Claire, you go first. And <laughs> oh, we've lost Claire again. <laughs> I love the internet. Go on, Chris. What, what sort of companies? To be fair, any company. So we work with one and two people, mom and pop, kind of micro SMEs, and we work with BSS, Unilevers, Procter & Gamble's. You know, we operate at both. Well, we operate at the end, throughout the entire spectrum. And really it's about the clarity of purpose that those companies have and ensuring that we can we can support them and we have a, a range of different engagement mechanisms that enable us to work effectively with those organizations uh, sometimes being able to get funding for their work or or they can pay for it themselves out of their own resources so you know, we we work with like i say small smes through to through to large corporates there is no limit from us we have different ways of working with each of them so it's yeah, it, 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 it's quite a mixture, you know, in a, in a typical financial year, we might have 130 customers, 150 customers across the whole of CPI. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the bits of work will, that some of those will be multi-million pound customers, and some of those will come and spend five or 10,000 pounds to achieve a piece of work. So, so we really have a broad spectrum of, of customers that come and work with us. And we work with the very small customers because one day they'll be the big customers. Yes, well so we might have to work with uh, several of them but maybe one in 10 or one in 20. CPI's two biggest customers were SMEs that we started 
working and engaging with at very, very small levels of work. And they've engaged with us on multiple CR&Ds, the collaborative research and development, publicly funded or private engagements. And they've worked with us across several of those over multiple years. And, you know, from a, from a relationship perspective, uh, I always tell customers, and I, in fact, I did it with a customer yesterday, there's two ways of really engaging with CPI. You can tell us what to do tactically, and we'll do what we can do if we can, or if we can't, we'll introduce you to someone that can, and that's a tactical kind of engagement. Or we can engage with you strategically where your company's success and our success, uh, based on the impact that we can help you deliver and everything else, become entwined, and it becomes a multi-year, long-term relationship. And at that point in time, we start thinking about you even when you're not paying for us because yeah, we start thinking about how to build you into other programs, how to build you into other bits of work. If we're creating a new capability, we were ensuring that that capability will satisfy what we know you're going to need in a year's time and so on and so forth. So we can engage really tactically, and that's fine, and we do that with, with a number of customers. But we also work really strategically with a small handful of customers where we become codependent and they come in, you know, to some extent, almost come and live with us and they move into CPI's facilities and, and work hand in glove with our team. And that's how they get the best out of our team because all of a sudden that two-person mom and pop shop suddenly becomes a team of a dozen. And to be absolutely honest, I joined CPI after being their second largest customer for four years in my own startup spin-out SME. So CPI was my technical department. And I took an office in the corridor opposite the labs. So the lab team used to love me because I just come and knock on the door and the lab <laughs> and see what was going on. Uh, but prior to being with CPI as a, as you know as part of their staff, I was actually uh, my organisation was their second largest customer through 2010 2014, uh, doing a, a range of different programs and different works as we took uh, our technology from test tube through to, to larger scales. So yeah, it, it's how CPI works best. Is, is that kind of strategic engagement but we do it with gsk or we do it with a, a one-person id coming out of the university yeah, yeah chris I, I, I think you you and uh, cpi and your colleagues have, have to be uh, admired um, because I, I knew that you weren't siloed in your thinking but you and i were both those big businesses that um, are just impenetrable to to get involved with unless you're um, over, over a certain size and and, the, and it goes back to the the way that you're you're bringing some of your team members on with with 30 of your team being on on set apprenticeships and um, that you, you also look after the smaller businesses because they could turn into case of point to two of your largest customers so and and they are the future aren't, aren't they so so again everyone i think we've learned so so much from from chris and um, and, and we've, we've lost claire oh it's such a shame to, to the vagaries of the internet and um, those are the po podcasts it wasn't to the fault of claire um, obviously, but I think we got a really good um, input from from Claire as well. But CPI, uh, Chris, you definitely want to, to to watch for the for the future. Are, are there any are there any any ways that we can find out about you over and above the local um, the, the, the the standard um, social media things? Are, are there any events that that you run or you attend where we can actually find out more, um, meet meet you all in, in person? What, what would your advice be on that, please? Um, yeah, I mean, the easiest thing is looking at the socials or the, the website at CPI, uk-cpi.co.uk, it's on the link, uk-cpi.com. Um, but, you know, we, we, we attend numerous events around, around the UK. I mean, there's a long list of, of, of events that I don't have um, that, that we're at. So if you ever see us around, uh, then, then please just come and have a chat. The, 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 the trick is... Um, <laughs> 
not to confuse us with the Confederation of Paper Industry. So if you see those guys at an event, uh, that isn't that isn't <laughs> us as CPI. Um, but you know, the, 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 there's a range of a range of ways of engaging. Obviously, we've got all the socials, Twitter, LinkedIn, and everything else. And quite often, the trick is just to simply throw uh, a link out. We, you know, you, you can there's a contact us form on the website, and that'll guarantee you a call back just to explain, you know, or have a chat about what it is that you're after because we do a lot of engagement through the website on that contact form uh, just to direct you to the right person in the organization to take your chat to the next stage and either determine whether we can help or we, you know, if we've got a friend who can, if we can't. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the easiest way in the modern world is to do the faceless thing and, and, and put a page through on the website. Alternatively, you, you'll, I'm sure I'll be linked in on this and you can drop yeah. me a line, uh, direct message me or hook up with me and I'll make sure that you, you, you get connected to the appropriate member of the team in CPI. I just had a, a WhatsApp from, uh, from someone who's watching on social media who says that CPI are, are, are brilliant. They're a real community of businesses. So I, I, I don't know if that's, I thought, again, that, that, that to me just, um, uh, just, just gives a real indication of, of, of you all as a, as, a, as a business and your colleagues. So Chris, thank you. We've learned so much today. Claire, thank you. Uh, we've learned so much from, from you as well. So let, let's all follow um, CPI, let's all collaborate um because it, it is it is this evolution that we're going through not not this, not this revolution and it just feels like cpi are, are the linchpin and in, in, in your areas of, of expertise and hence why we need to chris figuratively hold hands with with yourself and claire um to to get to this future future spot that we all want to get to yeah absolutely absolutely chris thank you very much for your time cheers max all the best thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you